I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the April 18th, 2022 episode, Season 1, Episode 11. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect together on how exactly all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past. And we'll think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll also use various studies as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The third Monday of each month is dedicated to scarring alopecia and we'll review a variety of studies in this particular area. We'll first talk about frontal fibrosing alopecia and then we'll turn our attention to lichen planopilaris. With FFA, we'll talk about the reversal of gray hairs or patients with FFA who are experiencing a darkening of hair color, either spontaneously or with treatment. We'll look a little closer at this very interesting subject. Then we'll talk about the risk of frontal fibrosing alopecia with surgery to the frontal hairline. A very fascinating subject area that's evolving over the last decade that suggests that cosmetic surgery, facelifts especially, may increase the risk of frontal fibrosing alopecia. The risk is still pretty small, but we'll take a look at a very interesting study. Then we'll talk about hair transplant surgery and scalp reduction surgery in patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia. We'll look at who's a good candidate and who might not be a good candidate. And then we'll turn our attention to lichen planopilaris and talk about four studies addressing the use of checkpoint inhibitors. These are a new treatment option for patients with cancer. The first checkpoint inhibitor being approved in 2011 and now we have several checkpoint inhibitors on the market that are FDA approved and there is an increased chance of lichen planopilaris with some of these checkpoint inhibitors and we'll take a look at a number of very interesting recent studies. The references for all of these studies are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then by looking at the concept of hair color reversal or the reversal of gray hair in patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia. Hair pigmentation and the phenomenon of gray hair is a really important subject, especially to the cosmetic industry, which has been really looking for over 5,000 years to be able to reverse gray hair. There are patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia who are noticing that their frontal hairline is becoming darker. It was once gray, now it's becoming darker. 
And this phenomenon is increasingly recognized, and I'd like to review a study by Barreto and colleagues published last month in the JEADV. And just this past week, I saw a patient with frontal fibrosing alopecia who has a darkening of his temples and hairline with treatment. I don't think we think a lot about this subject, and I think we should. It may be more common than we realize, but let's dive into these studies. This study from March is by no means the first study. In 2006, Defo and colleagues published a paper addressing this repigmentation in patients with FFA. The group described a 78-year-old woman who had repigmentation of the scalp margins. She had FFA, and in this 2006 study, the authors proposed that perhaps the inflammation in frontal fibrosing alopecia The inflammation around the hairs somehow triggers melanocytes to start the factory again and start producing pigment and produces darker colored hairs in patients that once had gray hair. Pastor Nito and colleagues published a study in 2021, which is the largest study of this concept to date. They described seven women with FFA who had a partial reversal of their gray hair in the context of FFA. And repigmentation was observed in the frontal hairline, the preauricular area in front of the ear, in all seven patients. Three patients had repigmentation partially in the back of the scalp, in the occipital region. So of these seven patients, three of them had repigmentation before arriving to clinic. This is not necessarily a treatment phenomenon whereby once treatment is started, pigmentation can resume again. A large number of patients are experiencing this repigmentation spontaneously. So three patients had pigmentation before and four patients had repigmentation of hair, at least partially, after their diagnosis. And these Patients had follow-up from one to six years. One was treated with steroid injections. One was treated with steroid injections and finasteride. And two patients were treated with clobetazole. And so Barreto and colleagues in last month's issue of the JEADV reported a 62-year-old Caucasian healthy male with biopsy-proven FFA who also had a spontaneous reversal of gray hair. And this patient had this slow reversal of gray hair for five years leading up to the consultation. And the patient brought in photos. This is what I looked like five years ago, and this is what I look like now. And the hair had darkened. And so I think this is a really interesting phenomenon. There's no doubt about it that the cosmetics industry would take great interest in a paper like this, the challenge has been how do we repigment hair? And here we have patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia, an inflammatory condition whereby there is some partial reversal of pigmentation. The mechanism is not clear. It's thought that somehow these melanocytes in the hair follicle are activated perhaps through these inflammatory mediators, these cytokines, reactive oxygen species. Nobody really knows. 
but there's some sort of inflammation in the hair follicle that triggers these melanocytes to start up their factories again and transfer this pigment into hair follicles. If you see patients with FFA, or if you have FFA, think carefully about this subject. I think it's more common than we realize, and I think it's a very interesting subject, and the prognostic significance is not clear. Is it a good prognostic sign that patients have repigmentation? Is it a poor prognostic sign? It may be a good prognostic sign. Many of the patients in this series of seven patients last year by Pastor Nido and colleagues had very minimal eyebrow loss, which we think would be a good prognostic sign if patients have very little eyebrow loss. And so it's really not clear, but be on the lookout for repigmentation of the frontal hairline. So we move then to another study of FFA, looking at the role of scalp cosmetic procedures in inducing FFA. Are you seeing patients with FFA who have a history of cosmetic surgery, facelifts, blepharoplasty, brow lifts? You probably are. And what role does this exactly have? Well, if we look back to the early literature in 2005, Cossard and Scheel from Australia, some of the early thinkers of FFA and what it means, published a paper in the International Journal of Dermatology describing a patient with frontal fibrosing alopecia happening after a hair transplant for androgenetic hair loss. And so the subject then evolved, does scalp trauma, hair transplants, other mechanisms of trauma, surgery, is it possible that it causes FFA in a small proportion of patients? A study in the British Journal of Dermatology 20, uh, 10 years ago, in 2012, by Chang and colleagues, described lichen planal pilaris happening after hair transplantation and facelift surgery. This group described seven patients with LPP after hair transplantation and three patients who developed frontal fibrosing alopecia after facelift surgery. Certainly a phenomenon that we have seen many times in the clinic and have published on it before, that scalp trauma seems to be a risk factor for the development of scarring alopecia like lichen planopilaris and FFA. But clearly not every patient with FFA or LPP has had cosmetic surgery or other trauma to the scalp. But Pham and colleagues published a very nice paper comparing 54 patients with frontal fibrosing alopecia to 51 matched controls. In the FFA group, 52 were women, 2 were male. In the control group of 51 patients, 49 were women and 2 were male. The average age of patients with FFA was 65 and 62 for the controls, and this was felt not to be statistically different. Scalp surgery was found to be much more common in patients with FFA compared to controls, and 50% of patients with FFA had a history of surgery on the scalp, particularly facelift surgery, as well as blepharoplasty and brow lifts, but the facelift surgery was the predominant surgery here. 
only 9.8% of control patients had such a history of surgery. And so FAM and colleagues proposed that there is a nearly eight-fold increased risk of FFA after these facial surgical procedures. And so this is still a pretty small risk. When you see a number like eight-fold increased risk, it certainly looks alarming, and it certainly is an increased risk. But if we consider that the background risk of FFA in the population, probably one in 5,000, a seven-fold increased risk is certainly an increased risk after cosmetic surgery, but it still means that most patients who undergo facial cosmetic surgery, 99.9% of them are not going to get FFA. And so I don't think this translates into new information that in the plastic surgery community, we need to counsel patients on the risk of FFA after these procedures. It's a very low risk, but I think this study is really important because it highlights that these facial cosmetic surgery procedures are relevant. We need to ask about them, and we need to study them more to understand better what this all means. There may be an increased risk for FFA in patients undergoing these types of surgery. Trauma to the scalp may be a risk factor for scarring alopecia. And this has been known for years. We call this the Kebner phenomenon. If you injure the scalp or you injure the skin, there's many diseases that appear. Psoriasis appears after scalp injury. Lichen planus appears after scalp injury. LPP and FFA may appear in some patients after scalp injury. So it's really important to be aware of this phenomenon. The reason it's also important to be aware of is in the context of hair transplant surgery. And that's where we're going to turn next. If trauma to the scalp can cause scarring alopecia, can we perform hair transplant surgery in patients with FFA? Surprisingly, the answer is yes, but only under certain circumstances. And we'll take a look at this now. We'll back up to 2019 to a very important study in our scarring alopecia literature that you should know about. And if you don't know about it, I'd like you to take the time to know about it. And that's why I'd like to review it with you. It's by my colleagues in Spain, Sergio Vano Galvan and colleagues performed a very nice study which was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology looking at hair transplant outcomes in patients with FFA. How successful is a hair transplant in FFA? Do these follicles survive when we put them into the skin of FFA? Are patients happy? Do they feel like this was worth it? Well, let's take a look at this study. 51 patients, but it's one of the largest studies looking at this to date. So Dr. Vano presented 51 patients, 48 females, 3 males with a mean age of 54. The hair transplant with sur surgery was done after a mean time of stabilization of 15 months. And by stabilization, the authors said that the patients couldn't have any progression of the frontal hairline for 12 months. And by trichoscopy, they couldn't have any signs of activity. The hair transplant procedure was done in standard ways. Strip procedures were performed in 86% of patients. Follicular unit extraction was performed in 14% of patients. The mean number of grafts that were transplanted was 1,345. So these are 
smaller procedures. I think this is really important because these aren't procedures with 3,000 grafts where we worry about blood supply. When you start packing in huge numbers of hair follicles into the frontal scalp, you do worry about blood supply, how close you pack them together, and survival. With 1,345 follicular units transplanted, those grafts should have plenty of room to live, and so it shouldn't be a factor of survival in terms of the density that's transplanted. The most frequent location for the transplant was the temporal area in 59% of patients, 44% had their grafts put in the frontal area, and 29% had eyebrow transplants. And all patients had some sort of medical therapy after their transplant. I think that's really important, and we'll come back to this in a minute. Patients were followed for a mean of 3.2 years, and it ranged from 2 to 10 years. So what were the outcomes? Well, the authors looked at the survival of grafts at one year, two years, three years, and five years. Now, in androgenetic hair loss, after one year, we would expect the survival to be about 95%. It varies, but the vast majority of grafts survive in androgenetic hair loss. How good was it in FFA? Well, it was 87%. 87% of the grafts survived at the end of one year. At the end of two years, this dropped to 71%. At the end of three years, it's dropping to 60%. At the end of five years, it's dropping to 41%. Less than half of the graphs are alive. This is a very, very nice study. These numbers are very, very important. Promising patients that the graphs you put in are going to be there in five years and 10 years is probably not accurate. But there's more to this study, which is really important, so let's continue. The authors showed that there was no good predictors in graft survival. They wanted to know who are the patients that get good survival of grafts. Well, there was no difference by technique, so you could do follicular unit extraction or strip procedures, same proportion of grafts surviving. Same proportion of grafts surviving if the hairs are placed in the temples and the hairline and the eyebrows, and same survival depending on the time between stabilization and surgery. So no clear predictors. Satisfaction was surprisingly high. 82% of patients were satisfied with their hair transplant. So even if follicles die, and even if the density starts out quite nice and then drops off after two years, three years, five years, a large proportion of patients are still very happy. One in five patients are not all that satisfied, so that's important to be aware of. That's still a fairly high number, but with proper counseling, helping patients with clear expectations on what to expect, and to understand the challenges of hair transplant surgery and FFA, this is a pretty high number. And certainly we see that in the clinic often, that even if you restore the density to some degree, you provide some coverage in the frontal hairline, some coverage to the eyebrows, patients are really very pleased with their results. And so we need to set clear expectations. We need to make sure that the disease is inactive before we transplant the scalp. And we'll talk about this. We certainly shouldn't be doing surgery 
on patients with active FFA? My personal feeling is that we should wait two years before we transplant FFA. From the time it first becomes quiet, we set the timer for two years. And if it's still completely quiet, no change in density, no resumption of itching, burning, or pain, no resumption of shedding, no resumption of perifollicular erythema or scale, then the patient has the green light for surgery, if they wish. Now, not everybody agrees with this, and some patient, some physicians say one year. My strong feeling is that we should be waiting two years. This paper by Dr. Van O'Galvan reminds us that these graphs are going to die. And so we need to counsel patients about this. We need to counsel patients that there may be some reduction in density over time. We don't know outcomes at 10 years and 15 years, so we have to be aware of that. But a large proportion of patients are pretty happy. This paper reminds us that being on treatment might be important. And we're going to come back to this in a minute, but I'd like to point out at this juncture that my views on FFA treatment have changed over the years. I am a strong believer now for FFA, and this may differ from other scarring alopecias, but for FFA, it's probably a good idea to have patients on treatment before the surgery, during the surgery, and after the surgery. The patients who seem to do the best are patients who remain on treatment, especially the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors like finasteride and dutasteride. Maybe minoxidil as well. Maybe occasional anti-inflammatory topicals like pomecrolimus. These studies really need to be done, but my personal view is that having patients on treatment is really a good plan. Years ago, we used to feel that if a patient's stable, they can come off treatment. If they still stay stable, they're a good candidate for surgery. I really do feel that being on treatment reduces the chance of flares and being on treatment re improves the outcomes of surgery. We're going to come back to this in a minute. So let's talk about another study, which was published in 2022 in March in dermatologic therapy. A very nice study looking at scalp reduction surgery combined with hair transplant surgery in FFA. We've talked about this concern that whenever you injure the scalp, we wonder if there's a possibility of FFA flaring. After all, there's an eightfold increased risk of FFA in patients undergoing cosmetic surgery. So is there any concern about transplanting patients with FFA? This is the ongoing concern. So Arasu and colleagues from Australia published a very nice report of a patient with FFA who was first stabilized with medical therapy and then underwent scalp reduction surgery to remove part of the frontal hairline and advance the hairline, and then waited four years, and then had a hair transplant as well. So let's take a look at this. I think it's a really, really nice study of the successful outcomes that are possible in FFA if the disease is quiet, and if medical therapy is implemented that is good medical treatment, and if one is patient. There's a lot of good lessons here in this study. This was a patient that was diagnosed at age 42. She was started on medical therapy consisting of dutasteride, minoxidil, spironolactone, and bimatoprost for her eyebrows. She presented with hair loss along the frontal hairline and temples and eyebrow hair loss. It's really important to note here that she's on dutasteride. This is one of the most effective treatments for FFA. This is not a treatment that everyone can go on. 
There are side effects with dutasteride. Dutasteride cannot be used in childbearing age. There's very little room to argue that dutasteride is not the most effective treatment in the present day for frontal fibrosing alopecia. So the patient is on dutasteride, is on spironolactone, is on oral minoxidil. It's a wonderful treatment combination. And so she stabilized her disease and then underwent hairline lowering surgery in 2015, two years after being stable. And so the procedure involved undermining the hair-bearing scalp behind the hairline in the subgallial space. These are procedures that plastic surgeons generally do. And about two centimeters of the forehead scalp was excised and advanced. And so essentially two centimeters of the forehead was removed and moved forward. And then the patient underwent a hair transplant four years after that with a thousand grafts. The disease had again been very stable over those four years of observation. She continued on medical therapy and it was a successful hair transplant. She was followed for an additional two years and she was found to be doing really, really well. No clear loss of grafts. And so I think this is a really nice study and I'd like to point out a couple of really important things. First, I think medical treatment for frontal fibrosing alopecia is really important prior to any type of surgery. And I do think, as I mentioned, it's very important during surgery and after surgery too. My view now is that all patients with FFA need to be on some kind of a treatment before surgery, and certainly after surgery as well, if at all possible. We need to be telling the immune system at all times don't even think about reactivating. Don't even think about going after these transplanted hairs. I think that's really, really important. And I think the patients that have the best outcomes are patients that are on continuous therapy after their procedures. Photography is key. And one of the nice things about this report is the serial photography that the authors pointed out that they did. If you're a clinician, you're really kidding yourself if you think that you can look at the scalp and say, huh, FFA looks quiet, looks pretty good. Let's go ahead and do surgery. FFA can look quiet and not be quiet. And the only way we can really show that it's quiet is to do photographs. And in my mind, I would like to see photographs over a period of two years done very, very nicely with Ten views, the front, the mid-scalp, the temples, the sideburns, the crowns, the eyebrows, the back of the hairline. I'd like to see those every six months over two years. So ideally, I'd like someone to lay out 40 pictures on the table and say, here's what I looked like two years ago. Here's what I look like now. If those photos look the same today compared to two years ago, you're probably a great candidate for surgery. Your disease is stable. The reality is, is that sometimes it can look stable in one's mind, and the patient can even think they're stable. But these photos show you've lost more eyebrow hair. You've lost more of your sideburn hair. You've lost more of your temple hair. Photos are extremely helpful. I'm not really so interested in how your itching is, how your burning is. It's very important, of course, if you do have increased itching, that's a bad sign, if there isn't a resumption of redness. But if everything seems quiet to you, 
those photos are key. And so photographs are absolutely key. And if a patient doesn't have photographs comparing progress over two years, I'm a little nervous about recommending hair transplant surgery. The other thing I liked about this paper is the emphasis on being patient. This patient waited two years once she was stable before going for scalp reduction surgery, and then she waited four years before going for a hair transplant. That's the kind of patience that's needed for good outcomes when you're operating on scarring alopecia. I think that's a really important message here, and that can't be overlooked. Waiting two years, three years before you're sure things are stable, that is almost standard in my mind in some of these scarring alopecias. If you have androgenetic hair loss, you can come in on day one and have a procedure a week later in some cases. Not everyone. But that's not true in FFA. Proving the disease is stable, doing the photographs, is really important. So waiting is important, and you have to be patient if you want good outcomes. The authors in this paper point out in their discussion that there was no loss of transplanted hairs. I think we have to be careful with that particular statement. It can look like there's no loss of transplanted hairs in a photograph, but if you actually measure, you can see that there's been a 10% reduction. And so unless you measure hairs, it's challenging to really say there's no loss of transplanted hairs. And the other thing to remember is Dr. Sergio Vanogelvan's wonderful study that I pointed out earlier, that there's a little bit of a reduction in graft survival at year one and two, but at year five, it's really dropping off. And maybe it drops off even more at year 10. And so follow-up to two years is wonderful, but there may be further loss of graphs over time. And so we really need to be aware of that. Two years is not long enough follow-up to really be confident that the outcome is going to stay this way. And finally, the title of this study is, is not ideal. The title of this study is scalp reduction surgery does not reactivate frontal fibrosing alopecia. This study really should have been called scalp reduction surgery does not reactivate frontal fibrosing alopecia in a patient with properly managed treatment-induced inactive scarring alopecia. So we need to be aware that this patient was really managed very well. Jean-Dutasteride, oral minoxidil, spironolactone, She's on a first-line treatment, or what I call a gold medal treatment. I think that's really important. If you have a patient with FFA, and you see this paper, scalp reduction surgery does not reactivate FFA, you think to yourself, gee, that's great. Maybe we can do scalp reduction surgery next week. This particular patient with this wonderful outcome is a patient with properly managed FFA whose disease was proven inactive over a long period of very patient follow-up. These lessons must not be forgotten in this paper. If you have a patient with FFA and they are started on a mild topical steroid two to three times a week, they're using some sort of an oil and they're using some hair supplement, I would be extremely hesitant to consider hair transplant surgery or scalp reduction surgery and this paper would not apply. So before we leave this topic, which really is such an important topic and one that I deal with every single week, and that is who are good candidates for surgery when it comes to FFA? There's no right or wrong answer. This is my professional opinion. 
but it's my strong opinion. I really do think that patients who are deemed fantastic candidates for surgery are patients that are on treatment. They're remaining on treatment, especially a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, like finasteride or dutasteride. Maybe other treatments as well, like topical or oral minoxidil, but especially the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. A patient who has stabilized their disease and has come off all medications because that's their wish, and they've been stable for two years with no evidence of progression, that may also be a good candidate, but ideally a patient who's staying on treatment. The patient must not report symptoms in the past two years. So a patient that has itching and burning after their vaccination for COVID-19, a patient who has itching and burning during stressful periods of their life, that's a worry to me. That means they may not be as quiet as we hope. The physician should monitor them over that two-year period. Are there times where there's perifollicular erythema that develops? Are there times where there's perifollicular scale that develops? Is the scalp calm, but the eyebrows are being lost? Is the scalp calm, but the eyelashes are being lost and the body hair has been lost this year? That's a sign of disease activity, and even if the scalp is quiet, that would concern me that the patient is ready for hair transplant surgery. And there can't be any evidence of ongoing hair loss. It's very, very difficult for patients and physicians to look at the scalp and say, it seems pretty quiet. Every time you come in, it looks the same. The only way to tell is with photographs. There are lots of patients that I've seen over the years that the patient thinks it's pretty quiet. When you look at the scalp, it looks pretty quiet. But when you compare photographs over a two-year period, you realize your sideburns have moved back a centimeter, a quarter of an inch. You've lost more eyebrow hair. These patients are not really great candidates for surgery. Can we sometimes do surgery? Yes, but with extreme caution. This patient is not a great candidate. The likelihood of poor graft survival is increasing with any indication you have that the disease is active. And we also have a concern if the disease is active that we could flare it. So these 10 images, the frontal hairline, the mid-scalp, the temples, the crown, the sideburns, the eyebrows, the back of the scalp, the arm hair, the leg hair if possible, it's really, really important because that's the only way we're really going to convince ourselves that FFA is quiet. And of course, the patient has to have sufficient donor hair in the back of the scalp. This is the area where we want to take the hairs, and there are some patients with advanced lichen planopilaris and FFA, whereby the donor area is quite poor. So a patient that says to me, I've been stable for two years, I'm staying on finasteride or dutasteride, doc, I'd like to go for surgery. I'm pretty happy. I'm thinking that's a great candidate for surgery. A patient that says, I've been stable for two years off medications, and I'm going to go for surgery, I would still give them the green light, but I'm a little bit more hesitant. The fact that a patient is on medical treatment as they undergo surgery makes me feel confident. I might not have said that three or five years ago, but I certainly do now. A patient that says to me, I'm stable, doc. I've been stable for 15 months. I want surgery. I'm going to stay on my medications. 
That patient is probably becoming a candidate, but I would like to point out I am a little bit more hesitant. I really do feel that waiting two years is really important. FFA, especially fairly stable FFA, can be pretty slow moving. You might not catch it on a picture at 15 months, but you probably will at two years. A patient that says, I'm stable. I've been on on medications for six months. My itching is gone. My redness is gone. I'm going to keep going with my medications. That's not a great candidate for surgery. Even if the patient's stable, six months is not enough time. There are patients where the redness can go away fairly quickly. The scaling can go away fairly quickly. But the patient continues to lose hair. Every six, seven, eight months, they lose hair. And so if you think that patient is a great candidate for surgery, I would ask you to consider again. And a patient with newly diagnosed FFA that says, I don't want to use medications. I just want surgery. That is not a good candidate for surgery. The outcomes tend to be very poor, and there most certainly is a risk of disease flaring. But I would like to point out who is the ideal candidate for hair transplant surgery in FFA. That is a patient who comes into clinic and says, I've had a prior hair transplant, or I've had a prior face uh, scalp reduction surgery, and it worked great. I've continued to be stable for two years. I'm on medication, and I'm going for a second procedure. That is a patient who has proven themselves that already one surgical procedure caused no issue. And that is indeed the best candidate. A patient who has proven themselves to be able to withstand the stress of surgery. The immune system didn't mind. There, there was no reactivation of disease. There was no flare of disease. And that is indeed what this paper is about by Arasu and colleagues. So we have to remember that. The patient did fantastic with her hair transplant, but she proved herself four years prior with an excellent outcome with scalp reduction surgery. So if a patient comes in to see me and says, I'd like to go for hair transplant, what do you think? I had scalp reduction surgery two years ago, four years ago, and I did great. I am very confident to say to the patient, if you remain on treatment, you have a high chance of success. In FFA, it's never a guarantee, but you have a high chance of success. And so finally, let's move on and talk about a group of medications called checkpoint inhibitors. These are an exciting group of treatments in the oncology or cancer field. There's now about 1,500 clinical trials going on around the world for various types of cancers with these checkpoint inhibitors. And there's about seven or eight of these checkpoint inhibitors that are now approved. And we're going to take a look at some of them and their ability to cause autoimmune disease and their ability to cause lichen planopilaris. And we'll specifically look at a study in dermatologic therapy in February with pembrolizumab, which is one of these checkpoint inhibitors. So let's look at this particular subject area, which is a fascinating one and an evolving one and one that we should all be aware of. 
So the authors here presented a patient who developed lichen planopilaris while undergoing treatment with pembrolizumab for metastatic melanoma. Pembrolizumab is a checkpoint inhibitor medication. These are a new class of drugs that I think are really, really important for us to know about as clinicians. So immune checkpoints are a normal part of the immune system. And I'll talk about this in a moment, but these checkpoints are important so that the immune system doesn't become so strong that it destroys healthy cells inside the body. And so when we have a cancer cell that the body has produced, a T cell will generally find this cancer cell. At least we hope that the T cell will find the cancer cell. There are receptors on the surface of T cells which can recognize receptors on the surface of cancer cells. And these receptors on the surface of T cells are called checkpoint proteins. And the proteins on the surface of cancer cells are referred to as partner proteins. And when a checkpoint protein binds to a partner protein on the cancer cell, there's a signal that's sent into that cancer cell for the cancer cell to survive. And these were observations about 15 years ago that are very, very important. One of these, for example, on the T cell is called PD-1, and the PD-1 ligand is the partner protein on the cancer cell. And so when PD-1 on the T cell binds PD ligand on the cancer cell, the cancer cell survives. There are medications which block the ability of these checkpoint proteins to bind to cancer cells. And by doing so, by preventing this receptor from binding, the cancer cell dies. And so these are a new class of medications which prevent T cells from sending signals into a cancer cell to live and only signals get sent into the cancer cell to die. We'll take a look at this in a minute. So in 1991, a Japanese researcher, Dr. Honjo, discovered one of these checkpoint proteins on T cells called PD-1. In 1995, another researcher, Dr. Allison, discovered CTLA-4, another checkpoint protein on T cells. And it would be another 15 or so years before the very first checkpoint inhibitor drug was approved by the FDA. And then in 2018, Dr. Honjo and Dr. Allison were both awarded the Nobel Prize for this incredible new discovery of these checkpoint inhibitor proteins and how they regulate cancer cells, survival, and death. So now there are a number of medications which are approved for a large range of different cancer types, often more advanced types of cancers, but there's about seven or eight of them now and over 1,500 clinical trials underway for other types of cancers. Epilimumab is targeting the CTLA-4 on T-cells. Semiplumab, nivolumab, pembrolizumab, which we'll talk about today, 
is also targeting T-cell checkpoint proteins, but here the PD-1 protein. And then there's a variety of other FDA-approved drugs that are targeting the PD-1 ligand on the cancer cell itself. And so we have these new drugs which block the ability of T-cells to tell cancer cells to survive. And so in this study in dermatologic therapy in February, we have a report of lichen planopilaris developing after pembrolizumab. And so pembrolizumab is a drug that blocks PD-1. It blocks the T-cell from binding to PD-1 ligand on the cancer cell. And we've come to realize as a medical community over the last few years that by blocking these T-cells from quieting down the immune system, that there actually can be an increased risk of autoimmune diseases. And diseases like thyroid autoimmune diseases, colitis, type 1 diabetes, and other autoimmune diseases are increasingly recognized in patients that use these checkpoint inhibitor drugs. And these checkpoint inhibitor drugs are now recognized to increase the risk of a variety of dermatologic autoimmune conditions, especially these so-called lichenoid skin reactions, of which one of them is lichen planopilaris. And lichenoid skin reactions are common. They're observed in about 17% of patients with PD-1 inhibitors. They usually affect the skin and the mucosa, but they can affect the hair. And so patients on checkpoint inhibitors have an increased risk of lichen planus, hypertrophic lichen planus, lichen planus pemphigoides, lichenoid dermatitis, and also lichen planopilaris. And so there have been a number of studies, including studies in 2018 and two last year, showing an increased risk of lichen planopilaris in patients using these checkpoint inhibitor drugs. So this study I'm about to describe with pembrolizumab in dermatologic therapy in February is not the first description of lichen planopilaris with these checkpoint inhibitor drugs. We have prior studies. But this study is a very nice report of another case of lichen planopilaris after PD-1 inhibitors. The patient was a 62-year-old man who was diagnosed with melanoma. In 2017, he developed a skin relapse, lymph node progression, and brain metastases. And he underwent lymph node dissection, whole brain irradiation, and the brain lesion was not resolved, and so pembrolizumab was administered. After the second infusion, he developed itching, and scaling and desquamation of the scalp. And 16 weeks after administration of the drug, he developed hair shedding and a number of red scaly papules on the scalp, accompanied by severe redness of the scalp. And a biopsy showed lichen planopilaris. He was treated with a strong topical steroid, clobetazole, and the redness went away and itching went away within two weeks and he was able to continue pembrolizumab for his melanoma, and the patient did very well. The authors report that despite severe disease of metastatic melanoma, the patient was still alive at the time of the report. And so these drugs, these checkpoint inhibitors, are really changing people's lives, they're increasing survival, and they're a very important group of medications for us to be aware of. Although the patient did have resolution of redness, there was some degree of permanent hair loss that the lichen planopilaris caused. And so the conclusion here 
is that these checkpoint inhibitors can cause lichen plano pilaris. So we need to be aware of this association. And pembrolizumab is one of the best described of these checkpoint inhibitors causing lichen plano pilaris, but there have been others as well. So be on the lookout for this in our oncology patients. So that's it for this week. I want to thank everyone for joining me this week. We've talked about this interesting phenomenon of partial reversal of gray hairs in patients with FFA. And we also talked about this eightfold increased risk of FFA potentially in patients undergoing cosmetic facial procedures, especially facelift procedures. We spent some time talking about surgical restoration. We talked about Dr. Van O'Galvan's study, looking at the survival of transplanted grafts at year one, two, three, and five after hair transplant surgery. Not all the grafts survive at year five, but nevertheless, many patients are still pleased. We talked about the importance of first ensuring that a patient's disease is completely shut off, that it's inactive before we give patients the green light to surgery. I think this is one of the most important points here that we've mentioned today. And continuing patients on treatment is probably very relevant for patients with FFA. And we went on to talk about this group of medications, these checkpoint inhibitors, of which pembrolizumab is one of them, and their ability to cause autoimmune diseases, their ability to cause autoimmune skin diseases, and their ability to cause a lichen planopilaris. A very important group of medications of which we'll be hearing a lot more about. They are approved for a wide variety of different types of cancers. And with 1,500 clinical trials on the go as we speak, there's a lot more cancer indications that will come out in the years ahead. Next week, we're back talking about a potpourri of different research studies for week four, and I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair.